know, this is just one form of of many ways that Israel is tightening its grip on Jerusalem and trying to change the characters of the city so that Palestinians either leave it or are rendered invisible in it. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, with me is my co-host, Asa Winstanley. Asa, how are you? Great. I'm very happy to be here again. I think um, we're awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're doing pretty well. This is uh, our third episode of the revamped Electronic Intifada podcast. And in a few minutes, we'll go to an interview with our colleague, Tamara Nassar, um, who's going to talk about um, some some recent brutal uh, home evictions in uh, occupied East Jerusalem, as well as um, ethnic cleansing operations uh, against Palestinian Bedouin communities. Uh, and then she's also going to talk about these the, um, these very close relationships um, between uh, Israel and uh, leaders, monarchies, dictators in some of the Gulf states and why it's important to keep our eyes on those relationships. Um, but first, Asa, what are you reading about, thinking about, um, reporting on this week? Well, I've mostly been thinking about and reading about Ilhan Omar. Um, Ilhan Omar did nothing wrong. Ilhan Omar, everything she said was factual and accurate. And if I falter for anything, it's for apologizing. Um, it really backtrack a little bit and tell us uh, who Ilhan Omar is. If anyone's been stuck under a rock the last week <laughs> and a half and hasn't seen what's uh, what's yeah, been taking place. I think we probably will do an episode about this, won't we, at some point? Um, because it's such a big topic. But yeah, um, yeah Ilhan Omar, the uh, new congresswoman, who um, you know she's on the left, and she she tweeted. Um, saying it's all about the Benjamins. Uh, right. This was in response to Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept talking about how um, the uh, GOP leader, um, Kevin McCarthy, was trying to figure out a way to punish Ilhan Omar uh, of Minnesota and also Rashida Tlaib of Michigan for being open about their support of the Palestinian-led campaign for BDS, uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And Glenn Greenwald was tweeting about how it's completely absurd and, and how, you know, the, the of course, he's being supported by Israel lobby interests in, in, in trying to punish these two congresswomen. Um, and Ilhan Omar tweeted, well, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, which is a line from a late 90s hip-hop track by Puff Daddy. Yeah, and then when um, she was asked um, who uh, is paying people to support Israel, um, she said APAC, which is just factually true. Like, so... Right. Um, and who asked her? Who was that person that asked her? It was Batya Ungar Sargon, who's the opinion editor for, editor for The yeah, Forward. Yeah, and the worst person. Um, who then... <laughs> who then led... This uh, this tirade against her for for using which what Batia called anti-Semitic tropes, which she couldn't even really back up um, herself. Uh, 
and and it it kind of led to this unbelievable pile on for for several yeah, days yeah and then her newspaper um, newspaper then used the incident to raise benjamins for their newspaper um sending out a, a fundraising email around which is the most cynical thing and which apac also did um so then so you know it it caused some division um this whole thing um she you know there was a big outcry against her and there was um she's come under a track from trump the arch anti-semite and more disgustingly i mean because we would expect it from the right but uh she's come under attack from uh democrats the democratic party establishment um and she was kind of forced in my opinion to issue an, an apology um for you know the way she tweeted and it the whole thing did cause some divisions on the left as as the whole labor anti-semitism hoax has done in the uk right i mean that's what was really revealing about this whole avalanche of um you know of of smear attacks against ilhan omar is that it, it kind of read exactly from the playbook of what um, racists have been and, you know, racist leaders uh, in the UK have been doing against Corbyn yeah. and anyone in the Labour Party who has um, an inkling of support for Palestinian rights. Yeah, so the the, the um, Labour anti-Semitism smear campaign is best understood as a campaign by racists to smear anti-racists as racists. And this is exactly what's <laughs> happening here. Yeah. You know, you've got um, Donald Trump, an arch-racist, yeah. calling an anti-racist, Ilhan Omar, a racist. And it's it's the most right. disgusting, cynical thing. And it, you're right, it, it, it's exactly the same playbook as what's happened here. Um, it's And it's all the same dynamics and all the same mistakes are being made. Where there's even people who... Um, on the left, who are good, you know, good intentioned, who are saying, well, you know, she was right, but she shouldn't have said it the way she said it. You know, they're they're saying, oh, well, and... uh, uh, Yeah, God forbid she should talk about the the financial aspect of what lobbies do. I mean, it was was completely... (laughs) It hit a level of absurdity, but it also spoke to this overwhelming pattern of attacks against uh, black women, Muslims, um, and and anti-racist people who understand that Palestinians um, are under a a violent, you know, apartheid and occupation system um, that is fully funded by the United States. Um, So it it kind of, you know, it was was this, it was this combination of so many factors of of misogyny and and anti-black racism and Islamophobia, um, you know, directed at this one congresswoman for stating simple facts about a lobby group on Capitol Hill. Yeah, what it's doing is actually singling out Israel for special protection. I mean, it's the the (laughs) only... Something that they accuse everyone else of doing. (laughs) It's the only lobby that you're not supposed to talk about as lobbying, as paying people off. Of course it pays people off. 
course it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then there was um, several articles afterwards which were kind of supporting her, but saying, oh, well, she wasn't, she was mistaken. Like, there was an article in The Guardian, pro-Israel donors spend over $22 million on lobbying and con- contributions in 2018. Um, and then even uh, that, so the article, basically, the first of the article was like to su- kind of to support her central point and saying, yeah, you know, they do, they do do this. But even that article, like, <laughs> um, kind of ticks her off. Um, she's, she's, it, it's, so it's supporting uh, the article, the essential basis of it. Um, and in the article, quoting from um, uh, this researcher into lobby groups, and, and this person is saying, I haven't observed many other countries that have a comparable level of activity, at least in domestic lobbying data. Um, and then the journalist, this Guardian journalist, uh, Tom Perkins, then says, um, Omar incorrectly suggested APAC makes campaign contributions to candidates. However, records show it did spend about $3.5 million lobbying during the 2018 election cycle. Well, you know, this person's that this right. ticking off Ilan Omar and getting their facts wrong, you know. Yeah, I mean, it just... Um... It was it was an extreme form of gaslighting, yeah. um, and and the fact that all of these, you know, liberals and you know soft Zionists were trying to to sort to somehow criticize Omar for saying exactly um, what was factually correct about Israel, uh, about Israel's lobby groups. Um, while trying not to look as racist as they are, was just, mm. it was messy and clunky, and it just revealed exactly what Omar was pointing out, that there is massive influence, um, it, you know, inside the halls of power um, and, and by these, by, by Israel lobby organizations and, and yeah. APAC being an umbrella organization for many uh, lobby groups. Um, yeah, and they and they, you know, somehow we weren't supposed to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, and and it even some of it even comes from some leftists, which is really infuriating. Where they get into this thing where they say, "Oh well, actually, I agree with Noam Chomsky, and I don't, I think it's down to ideology and blah 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 and all this kind of stuff." And it's just really yeah. stupid because um, APAC does buy off candidates. It uses dark money to do it. You know, they say, "Oh well, I looked on a, you know, I had some idiot like." with some sort of Marxist um, Twitter uh, handle, you know, claiming to be a Marxist. But like, they're just ignoring, it's some kind of, you know, it's not a very good Marxist who ignores like objective facts, the objective reality of um, APAC literally buying off people, buying off candidates with dark money. And, the, you know, in, in the Israel lobby documentary, they explained in their own words how they did that, you know. <laughs> right, right. You know? They use this. Exactly. They 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 use this kind of off the books money. Then they skirt around electoral law, um, but they That's definitely right. do it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of absurd to think. You know, it, the the APAC, which raises I don't know tens of million dollars, millions of dollars a year. What are they spending it on birthday parties <laughs> for their you know for their workers? I, I it's it's completely absurd. Um, but you know what I thought was also really important to to point out was that after three or four days of being completely bullied 
um, and smeared as an anti-Semite and all of this uh, absurd uh, attacks against her. Ilhan Omar then, um, you know, led, I, I think, one of the most, uh, you know, anti-war interrogations of one of the most notorious pro-genocide architects of um, destabilization Elliot campaigns. In, God, it was yeah, so damn good. Who, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. You know, and she... It wasn't even like, you know, very radical questioning. No. She was just like, okay, you lied to Congress in 1991 about your involvement in supplying arms to the Contras. Um, what makes you think that we can trust you now in your efforts at regime change in Venezuela? And I think that was, you know, just that level of, um, again, laying out yeah. the facts and not being um, apologetic yeah. and and not compromising in her uh, leadership as an, you know, an elected lawmaker. That's what we expect our electeds to do. I love how she just refused Um, to accept this whole idea of, oh, we've got to be civil, you know. That's right. That's right. And, and she, I mean, she was dignified. She had integrity. She didn't let Abrams, you know, complete meltdown and hysteria, um, (laughs) you know, waver her at all. I mean, he, this was probably the first time in his life that he had ever been made Or even questioned. You know, even even question. questioned on something that <laughs> I mean, actually matters, as opposed right. to like, oh, yeah. you know, you you lied to someone who yeah. was uh, is important. You know what I mean? Right. And and as I pointed out in a in a blog post that I I posted on EI last week, you know, her commitment to anti racist principles that were exemplified in her interrogation of Elliot Abrams um, is is something that that I think the Democrats fear as much as they feared her speaking openly about APAC and the, the Israel lobby influence. Yeah. You know, they don't, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the, the you know, the top Democratic Party leadership, um, they are gunning for regime change in Venezuela. And when they see, you know, this, this hotshot, you know, congresswoman, um, you know, speaking her truth and taking these, these um, centers of power into account, uh, holding their feet to the fire, um, that that I think um, made them nervous to say. Yeah, this. I think you're absolutely right. I think this this goes to the heart of um, the threat f- from the left, as they would see right. it, um, because um, what this represents, what Ilhan Omar represents, that's new, is an actual challenge on uh, foreign policy. Bernie Sanders has given them a challenge on domestic policy in terms of having some sort of, you know, basic, just, I don't know, not, not, not common sense, just like, like (laughs) having some sort of healthcare or anything just right. Common. Yeah. Just common sense stuff, basically, that you would need in any kind of sort of social democratic um, government and state. Um, uh, but, you know, he's often, from our point of view, been incredibly lacking on questions of international solidarity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, even um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we can say the same about her. Um, but what yeah. Ilhan Omar represents is a challenge to that, you know, and, and not just on Palestine, right. but the fact that Palestine is this um, emblematic issue and the fact that she, for, for, for international solidarity... Um, and the fact that um, she's challenging Elliot Abrams, the architect of these um, American imperial dirty wars in Latin America, is just it is really incredibly yeah. inspiring. So 
Right. Listeners, everyone go and read Nora's piece about this. Ilhan Omar oh, takes on the establishment and, you know, ignore anything else that's out there. Don't read, don't read anything <laughs> else. Don't read things. <laughs> uh, but no. Read her transcript of, of, of her grilling. Yeah. Elliot oh, God, Agents. it's so good. It's pretty yeah. remarkable. Watch it. Oh, yeah. The video's even yeah. better. But, but yeah, you can, the, you the can go to Nora's article on electronicinterfile.net. Ilhan Omar takes on the establishment. And it's uh, the video's there. And uh, Nora also did an article for In These Times, which was also very good. So Thanks. Thanks. I was I was very fired up about it last week. <laughs> As I think most leftists, you know, real hardcore anti-racist leftists should have been. Yeah, I think it was... Um, it was but just here we a, are. It, I think it was just... Um, inspiring full stop to see something like that happen you know yeah absolutely well we're going to take a quick music break we'll be back with tamara in one minute stay tuned Joining us on the Electronic Intifada podcast is our colleague, Tamara Nassar. Tamara, how are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me, Nora Nessa. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. So we wanted to, to get a sense of um, what you've been focusing on um, recently uh, through your work at the Electronic Intifada. Um, take us through a little bit about what you cover and um, and, and the stories that, that you've been... Um, you've been reporting on lately and, and why they're important. Absolutely. Um, so in the past, I would say, year or so, I have been focusing on Gulf states growing normalization with Israel. This has largely been uh, a covert effort, but is coming out of the shadows now with uh, a mutual enmity towards Iran at the core of it. So uh, that's really been my focus. Of course, um, in many of those Gulf states, the public is actually very opposed to normalization with Israel. So there's also been, I've been covering um, incidents where uh, sport athletes or um, artists um, and other other uh, other people from those countries who refuse to participate in tournaments or championships because there is Israeli participation. Um, and yeah, so that's my main focus, uh, but I also uh, write a lot about prisoners' affairs, um, Palestinian prisoners in uh, in Israeli jails, as well as Israeli demolitions um, and uh, property seizures of Palestinians that occur within the occupied West Bank and the occupied Golan Heights, but also sometimes inside of Israel. So speaking of which, uh, you just published a story um, over the last few days about this just um, heinous, horrifying expulsion of a Palestinian family from their home that they've had for nearly 70 years uh, in occupied East Jerusalem's old city. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this story, about this family, the Abu Asab family, um, and what happened to them uh, over the weekend? Absolutely. Um, so Israeli occupation forces arrived to the Abu Asab family home in uh, the Muslim quarter of occupied East Jerusalem on Sunday and uh, forcibly evicted them from their homes and handed their homes over to uh, Jewish settlers. So the Abu Asab family 
is originally from the Baqa neighborhood, which is located in Western Jerusalem, where uh, tens of thousands of Palestinians were forcibly expelled during the Nakba, which is uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians carried out by uh, Zionist paramilitary forces in 1948. So this is not the first time that the Abu Asab family um, is rendered uh, are rendered refugees in their own, in their own city. Um, they they moved to to this home that they were just expelled from in 1952. Um, after uh, so the, when they were expelled from their original home in their in 1948, they first moved to Damascus gates near Damascus gates in old in the old city, and then they moved uh, to this home, which is originally owned by the Nasebe family. It's a Palestinian family from Jerusalem called the Nasebe family, who had leased the property to Jewish settlers, uh, to the Jewish residents um, before 1948. And this lease was for 99 years. And despite the fact that the lease has ended, um, the uh, the family handed the property over to, to a trust. And then the trust was... Uh, taken over by settlers um, who launched a legal effort against the Abu Asab family in 2014 to, uh, to, seize, to seize the home that they were living in, despite the fact that they were paying uh, rent consistently to the absentee property guard. So um, under, under Israeli law, under the 1950 absentee property law, um, Israel has the right to keep Palestinian homes that Palestinians left or um, or were forcibly expelled from in 1948 um, and, and would not allow Palestinians to reclaim their homes or even receive compensation for, uh, for these homes. But a 1970 amendment to this law allows uh, uh, Jewish residents to reclaim property that they left in 1948. So this is a blatantly racist measure against Palestinians. And the Abu Asab family now cannot, for example, return to the home that they were forcibly expelled from in the Baqa neighborhood where they were where they're originally from. But um the Jewish settlers who now live in their home that was that they were just expelled from a few days ago is not even the same Jewish family that that lived there before nineteen forty eight. So this is a, a blatantly racist measure and and Palestinians, especially in, in occupied East Jerusalem, are constantly subjected to that kind of fear of um, of being on the verge of imminent eviction, e- even after being in that home for for about six, seven decades. I think this is a, a good example of um, Israeli settlers, essentially, and what they do and why um, the issue of Israeli settlements um, is not some sort of theoretical thing it's part of like when we say the the israeli colonization of palestinian land and it's talked about by palestine solidarity campaigners in that way um it's not it's not like a theoretical thing or a historical thing it's something that's very actively um going on and it's something sort of these these kind of evictions really sort of illustrate the the brutality of uh, Israeli colonialism and Israeli settlements. So um, how how common is this sort of... This kind of story is is, is something that um, you cover a fair bit. So, like, how uh, common is it for this this kind of thing to happen in the West Bank and, uh, and uh, Jerusalem? 
I would say it's pretty common. I mean, there's another family that's facing a similar legal battle right now. Um, actually, it's it's they're facing imminent eviction. The Israeli High Court ruled for their imminent eviction by January 23rd, so they could be evicted any any day now. It's the Sabah family. They live in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of mm. um, of uh, occupied East Jerusalem. It's a family of 40, 30 of which are children. And if if they are evicted, these these people have nowhere to go. Um, they they are originally from Yaffa and they own two homes there. And uh, following the Nakba, they moved to Sheikh Jarrah in 1956, and uh, Israel took over their homes in in Yaffa. So now, if they if the Sabah family is actually evicted from their homes um, from their home in Sheikh Jarrah, they they cannot return to Yaffa, of course, and they will just be rendered um, mm-hmm. homeless. So uh, there was there was a there was a, there was a quote by. Um, by Muhammad Sabah, who is one of the older members of the family, um, who said, why, why can't I take my property back from 1948? Um, the same way, you know, Israel wants to seize this property in the name of, you know, this, it, it, that it belongs to Jewish residents um, before 1948. So uh, I, would, I would say it's pretty common, especially in occupied East Jerusalem, where Israel is further entrenching its occupation um, through either literally evict forcibly evicting Palestinians from their homes um or uh pumping money into into uh settlement projects and and um there was a recent report in uh in Israel home um about an Israeli government agency t- called the Company for the Reconstruction and Development of the Jewish Quarter um, which is a holy, which is a company wholly owned and, and established by the Israeli government, and they just allocated fifty-five million dollars um, for projects in Jerusalem. Of course, these projects are 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 being done in the name of tourism and and um, developing tourist routes and all of that. But um, Israeli uh, human rights group Ir Amim says that. Um, Israel uses this this excuse of um, exploiting tourism as a tool for reinforcing uh, settlement initiatives in Jerusalem and uh, initi- basically trying to erase Palestinian presence from the city by by uh, tightening its grip on it. So, um, you know, this is just one form of of many ways that Israel is uh, tightening its grip on Jerusalem and trying to change the characters of the city so that um, Palestinians either leave it um, or are rendered invisible in it. Uh, even after, I mean, after the, the eviction of the Palestinian Abu Asab family on Sunday, uh, Israeli forces uh, closed the doors of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, closed and, and placed locks on the Bab al-Rahma um, site where Palestinians pray. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's collective punishment. Mm-hmm. I think that it's the way that Israel entrenches its occupation is multifaceted. And I suppose reading your latest article about this, which we'll link to when we post um, this uh, podcast, your article is titled Settler Soldiers Seize Jerusalem Home from Palestinian Family. Um, the And it's completely common i suppose to answer my own question to you and as as you said it's it's a very common thing to happen um for palestinians to be expelled in this way um and i suppose in in your article that the only thing that struck me as unusual was that they would even have any kind of connection um the jewish settlers would have any any kind of connection to the palestinian home 
um, that's the unusual aspect of it because you know as you've alluded to in talking about the um, Israeli laws the racist is- Israeli laws um, any Jewish person from around the world even whether or not they have um, any kind of connection to uh, Palestinian to Palestine has more of a right to under Israeli law to settle in Palestinian homes than Palestinians themselves. Um, Mate, can you talk a little bit about uh, Israeli s- settlements and how um, Palestinian uh, and how uh, Israeli law kind of discriminates against Palestinians in that way? Yeah, I mean, Israelis settlements um, are some of the most or how some of the most uh, racist Israelis in um, uh, the Palestinian mandate. So it's, um, you're absolutely right that it's, most of the time when these kinds of things occur, um, settlers are firmly protected by Israeli soldiers. So um, this, this, I mean, this Israeli settlement, this Israeli family who, who, who just moved um, into the Abu Asab family home, walked into the house right in front of them and they, while Israeli soldiers were beating Hatim Abu Asab and uh, arresting him along with his son and beating uh, one of the aunts of the family, so it's, um, I mean, it's 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 like you said, any any Jewish person from anywhere in the world can, has more claim over uh, Palestinian land and uh, property than Palestinians who have been living there for for decades. Um, and and this Jewish family that's just moved into the Abbasid family home, not only do they have no connection to 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 the to the family home, but let's let's say for a second that it was actually the Jewish family that lived there before 1948. They were not even the owners of this house. The the actual owners of this house are the Nusebe family who who were leasing the home for. Um, for the the Jewish family that was living there before 1948 and fled after uh, after during or after the Nakba, so it's um, this family is is originally owned by Palestinians as well. So, um, but 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 Israeli law still allows uh, the High Court to 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 hand over um, one Palestinian home to another Jewish family without uh, you know without any problem or you know legal battle in, under Israeli law. Mm-hmm. And you look at the video, and, what, and we'll link, of course, to some of the videos um, that, that you embedded in, in your report on this, Tamara. But, um, I mean, it's not just like, you know, this, this um, you know, a couple of police officers, you know, protecting this, you know, this settler family, um, you know, and easing their, their you know, casual transition in, into this Palestinian family's home. This is like a highly militarized, I mean, there were like dozens of, of police, of Israeli police, um, some of whom you mentioned, as you mentioned, were, were beating some of the, the members of the Palestinian family um, and, and preventing the family and people in the community from protecting the family from being uh, evicted as their home was being seized by these settlers. Um, and this isn't just like, you know, as you were mentioning, this isn't just a, a one-off thing. This isn't just a, an anomaly situation. This is happening all the time, not just in East Jerusalem, but elsewhere in the West Bank. And as well, uh, you know, in places inside uh, inside Israel itself, uh, you've also been documenting the forced expulsion of, of Palestinian Bedouin uh, in the Nakab, in, in the, the Negev Desert. 
um, as well as uh, other communities inside the Jordan Valley. Um, can you talk a little bit about y those stories as well and how these, these home evictions that we're seeing in broad daylight uh, in Jerusalem are connected to what's happening uh, inside the Nakab and in other Palestinian communities around uh, historic Palestine? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to also talk about the community, the Palestinian village of Khan al-Ahmar, which has been uh, facing imminent demolition for years now. Um, so Khan al-Ahmar is a small Palestinian village located in Area C of the Occupied West Bank, which constitutes 60% of, uh, of the Occupied West Bank. And it's a community of about 200 um, Bedouins who come from the Jahalin tribe. And um, Khan al-Ahmar has been facing imminent uh, uh, demolition and forcible evacuation uh, by Israel for the past um, for the past several years, and um, the Israeli High Court uh, in the past few months um, completely approved their imminent demolition, and this community could uh, could be forcibly displaced, displaced and evacuated, um, and their whole uh, village demolished um, any time now. Um, and even though there has been um, several several uh, um, delays in, in their demolition, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is constantly reaffirming that Khan al-Ahmar will be evacuated and that it's a court ruling and that um, this is Israeli policy and that it will be done. Um, the location of Khan al-Ahmar is very important because it lies in the uh, E1 area, which is this area east of Jerusalem, um, that basically separates the northern and southern West Bank, West Bank from each other. And Khan al-Ahmar is kind of this last hope. And if Khan al-Ahmar is evacuated, the the any any kind of fantasy of a, of a two-state solution would be over because um, this is where Israel is planning to expand its mega settlements of Ma'ali Adamim and Kfar Adamim. Um, so Khan al-Ahmar has been... Has been subject to um, harassment by settlers um, over the course of this legal battle. Um, activists and journalists have been uh, trying to sleep there sometimes to try to protect it. Um, and I mean, eventually Israel wants to wants to force Khan al-Ahmad's resi residents to move to an area called um, Al-Jabal West, um, which is located near a landfill um, of the Palestinian village of Abu Dis. And this is, of course, this would absolutely not work with uh, the lifestyle of these villagers who live a nomadic lifestyle and um, uh, need to live in an area that's that is not that is not a landfill. Something uh, that I find quite interesting uh, and that I've noticed in about Khan al um is that um, because I cover the Israel lobby um, in the UK. Uh, you notice that um, even some of the people who are quite like politicians who are quite actually pro-Israel on balance, and you know who's who do things like claim that the Labour Party is an anti-Semitic party and whatnot. There's one particularly nasty MP called Wes Streeting. Um, even some of them have been critical of the Israeli government for its treatment of. Khan al because it's such a such an obvious act of racist ethnic cleansing but I mean I mean as you s started to talk about there's really no difference to how um, Israel treats Palestinians 
or there's mm-hmm. there's little difference anyway to how Israel treats Palestinians all over historic Palestine. Um, so, can you talk a bit about how uh, Israel is also ethnically cleansing Palestinian citizens of Israel um, in in the Nakab? And maybe talk a little bit about like the similarities and differences, if there are some, um, with with um, Israeli ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. Definitely, um, there's there's an area in the Naqab called called Imbil Hiran, um, where Israel has been trying to uh, that Israel has been trying to forcibly expel and demolish um, also for for a long time. Uh, the Israeli government in uh, in April of last year tried to force residents to agree to their own expulsion. Um, they want to resettle them in a town in the southern Naqab called Huda um, under threats of violence. Um, so, I, I mean, there there is definitely a connection. Um, it, it all goes back to the root uh, blatant racism of not wanting Palestinians to be in, in areas, especially ripe areas where, uh, where Israel plans to expand its settlements um, and and uh, make make life so difficult for Palestinians that they either leave themselves or they are forcibly expelled. Um, and Umm al Hiran is, is is a village of three hundred and fifty people, and they're all citizens of Israel. And if they uh, if the expulsion is carried out, all of them would be rendered homeless. Um, so yeah, this is this is and what you said about what you said about the. Uh, the condom- the unusual condemnation that um Khan al Ahmad receives um or the unusual condemnation from European Union and um uh, UK leaders who who criticize Israel's measures in, in Khan al Ahmad. Um it's I mean there's of course like a lot of uh verbal opposition, but apart from verbal op- opposition, EU states have failed to spell out any clear consequences for Israel if it defies these calls. Yeah, so I think that's a really important um, point to make, actually. Yeah, that, that definitely goes for yeah. the people I was talking about. Absolutely. It's, it's lip service. It's, it's... And same same for politicians in the U.S. I believe Dianne Feinstein, um, one of my senators here in California, um, who has been a, a staunch advocate of Israeli policy, um, you know, issued some kind of, you know, mealy-mouthed uh, condemnation of, of Israel's plans to ethnically cleanse Khan al-Ahmar. But of course, as you said, there is like no mention of consequence. Um, and, yeah. and you know, of course, Dianne Feinstein will be one of the first, you know, Democratic senators to re-sign another, you know, um, military aid package to Israel the first chance Yeah, and gets. it's also usually um, couched in terms of like criticizing Netanyahu rather than, you know... The pointing out the fact Absolutely. that this is sort of this 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 goes through what Israel is like as and what Zionism is like because you can't possibly you know, criticize that. Definitely, they paint it as um, as a character of the current Israeli government, yeah. and that you know once Netanyahu is replaced, um, everything will be resolved. As opposed to you know this is actually like an essential part of the essential essence of how Israel came to be. And, and I mean, this is very common with, with the EU, and I can talk about this forever, but the EU funds so many construction projects for Palestinians in Area C, which, um, which is, you know, the most contested area um, in the occupied West Bank. Um, and even though um, Israel caused an estimated $74 million in destruction for EU-funded projects 
um, from 2001 until 2016. And, and the EU has done absolutely nothing to hold Israel accountable for destroying these projects. That's $74 million in, in projects that Israel destroyed. And, Israel, and, and the European Union continues to, you know, condemn Israel's actions and condemn Israel's demolitions and sometimes even send um, uh, delegations to visit Khan al-Ahmar and to visit those areas. But at the end of the day, um, they keep building and Israel keeps destroying and the relationship is as strong as ever. We're speaking with Tamara Nassar, our colleague at the Electronic Intifada, um, speaking about home demolitions, um, the brutal continuing policies of ethnic cleansing by Israel against Palestinians. Um, Tamara, as you mentioned at the beginning, you're, you're also covering a lot of the, the power dynamics and the, and the, the close relationship building <laughs> between Israeli leaders and leaders of Gulf states. Um, Walk us through a little bit about uh, a little bit of your your most recent reporting on this, um, and you know tell us why it's important to factor in these kinds of uh, relationships um, between leaders in the Gulf and and Israel, uh, and why and and how it kind of fits into this context of building Israel's um, projects of of Zionism and and violence in the region. Yes, um, there's definitely been. A huge rise in normalization between uh, Arab countries, especially in the Gulf um, and with Israel. This, I suppose, the the most recent uh, blatant form of it was when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went to Oman to visit uh, to to meet with Sultan Qaboos. Um, Oman and Israel have no formal diplomatic relations. In fact, Israel has no formal diplomatic relations with any of these Gulf states. So this is, uh, um, oh, for listeners, this is Oman, the country, not Amman, the city. This is the country next to Yemen. <laughs> yes. Um, Jordan and Israel do have diplomatic relations. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so when, when, uh, when Netanyahu visited this was the most you know blatant form of uh, overt normalization with a country with no formal diplomatic relations uh, we saw last week in the Warsaw um, uh, conference uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also met with the uh, Armani foreign minister uh, Yusuf bin Alawi um, the meeting was supposed to be in secret uh, Yusuf bin Alawi actually arrived to Netanyahu's a hotel in the Polish capital from like the side door, but uh, Israeli journalist Barak Ravid uh, caught him on camera sneaking into the building, and then the the official meeting between Netanyahu and Ben Alawi was actually videotaped, and um, in 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 the video, uh, you know Netanyahu thanks thanks Ben Alawi for meeting with him again. And he says that he feels at liberty to speak on behalf of not only Israelis but many people in the Middle East to thank Oman for this for their for their uh, uh, warming up to Israel. But this, I mean, this also has been happening. It's it's very disgusting, but it's uh, also been happening with other um, Gulf states. Of course, this is being pushed by. Um, Saudi Arabia with uh, with the mutual enmity towards Iran at the core um, in also in October while there was there was a blitz of normalization with Israel um, there was uh, an Israeli judo team that went to the UAE to participate um, under the promise by the Emirates that they would allow the Israeli flag 
to be displayed and the Israeli anthem to be played should uh, the Israeli team um, uh, win any medals, which they did, and the and the Israeli anthem was played in Abu Dhabi, and uh, racist Israeli cultural minister Miri Regev uh, was there, and she even cried while uh, the Hatikva was playing in Abu Dhabi. Um, same thing in in Qatar. Uh, the gymna- the Israeli gymnastics team went to Qatar and participated in a tournament there. Um, and these are just you know. Uh, sparse events that that show just a larger effort by uh, by these Gulf states to basically race to Israel's heart um, uh, out of out of um, the uh, out of mutual animosity and and warmongering um, against Iran mm-hmm. so um, yeah. And this is the same Miri Regev who once apologized to cancer sufferers for comparing them to black people. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, could you uh, talk a little bit about um, normalization and the concept of normalization in um, Arab countries? Because um, many listeners may not be familiar with this and maybe talk a little bit about what what um how israel is regarded in that way by people in the gulf states as opposed to well in in the arab world in general as opposed to um the sort of and the arab uh, dictators and other leaders definitely i mean there was there was a moment in the warsaw conference uh the yemeni foreign minister was seated right next to prime minister benjamin netanyahu and uh when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's microphone malfunctioned. The Yemeni foreign minister lended him his microphone, and uh, former settler guard Jason Greenblatt uh, went to Twitter and and of course celebrated this moment and said, um, you know, this is great because when when that happened, Netanyahu said, oh, this this is like cooperation between Yemen and Israel. Um, so Netanyahu is clearly exploiting like every single. Uh, um, anything that these Gulf leaders are giving him to kind of normalize relations. But on Sunday, which this was amazing, um, uh, a lot of people in Yemen were posting pictures of enormous crowds um, of Yemenis going out into the streets and saying, we refuse uh, Yemeni normalization with Israel, we refuse any Arab normalization with Israel, and we do not agree to this. So the the public in in, in most of these countries are completely opposed, um, not only to you know diplomatic relations with Israel, but in many cases, and even um, acknowledging ac- acknowledging that that Israel as a country in the region, as long as Palestinians are oppressed. Mm. So um, the fact that a lot of these leaders are speaking to um, uh, to Netanyahu and other Israeli officials, whether in secret or not, um, really angers really angers the public because uh, it's it's coming at the expense of Palestinians, and most of them know it. So, um, yeah. yeah. So um, Israel has peace agreements with um, the Egyptian dictator and with. Um, the Jordanian king, uh, but aside from that, Israel has no diplomatic relations with, no formal diplomatic relations with uh, any Arab country. Um, I think that's right. Am I right? I'm not forgetting anyone there. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> um, 
and can you talk a little bit about so but despite that there are as you alluded to earlier secretive there there has been for many years secretive contacts between Israel and um Gulf dictators in particular can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about the history of that definitely um i mean Barak Ravid, who I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Israeli Israeli journalist with Israel's Channel 10 and 13, um, has been uh, documenting that history uh, recently in a series of normalization um, uh, in history pieces. Uh, and most of these relationships span uh, two decades or more, which is really crazy. Um and I mean, this this has been I've been covering uh, events of, uh, you know, secret meetings between Israeli officials and um, and th- in those Gulf states or with Gulf leaders. Um, one of one of the, the recent um, the recent events of uh, an Israeli leader visiting one of those Gulf states was Israeli opposition leader uh, Avi Gabay, who uh, visited the UAE in December and met with senior um, Israeli officials. Um, there's there's also been, I mean, Qatar, which was which is a very people seem to think that it's uh, it's actually one of uh, one of the biggest um, normalizers with with Israel. Um, uh, Ali Abu Naima and I wrote a report. Um, uh, in the summer, uh, about how Qatar funded Zionist, the Zionist Organization of America. And yeah, other... this, I mean, I find this uh, quite uh, staggering, really. I mean, I I would have thought the Qataris would be would have been smart enough, like from their point of view, to have funded I don't know, like J Street or something, and then they could have at least said, oh, you know, these are you know liberal and pro-peace or whatever or whatever kind of propaganda like that but instead they chose there's there's the uh, zionist organization of america um the most you know right-wing oh extremist yeah <laughs> uh, zionist organization mort klein openly racist you know um i mean like why <laughs> what what do you make of that I mean, I still don't quite get that. Yeah, I mean, ever ever since uh, Qatar faced the the regional isolation and blockade by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, it has really tried to escape that by running to Washington's heart, and and the closest route to Washington's heart is through Israel. So, so leading up to that to that <laughs> event, um, Qatar was inviting um, so many. Uh, Zionist figures, Zionist American figures mm. to Qatar to go on um, these state-sponsored trips where they would meet with Qatari officials and go on these tours. And um, I mean, some of these, some of the leaders that, some of the influential figures that they invited included the Zionist Organization of America's president, Morton Klein, as well as um, Zionist propagandist, lunatic, Alan Dershowitz, who visited Qatar twice that we know of, um, including a trip. I think we could say now as well, alleged paedophile Alan Dershowitz. Yes, yes, one of the worst people on the planet, yeah. and and he he visited Qatar twice, including uh, one trip where he went to uh, 
Northwestern University um, in Qatar, and he gave a lecture, and and students actually walked out from the lecture and filmed um, from, filmed themselves walking out of the lecture in protest of his of his presence in Qatar. And you know, after the first time, he came back to the U.S. and published an article in the Hill, singing of, singing of Qatar's praises and saying, you know, why is Saudi Arabia um, blockading Qatar and Qatar is the Israel of the Middle East. That's one of the lines from his yeah. piece. And yeah. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, Qatar has been, Qatar's <laughs> ruler, Tamim bin Hamad al Thani, has been absolutely shameless in his um, all out uh, giving <laughs> literal, literal funds to the Zionist Organization of America and um, the, this other organization called Our Soldiers Speak, which which um, gets Israeli soldiers to go on speaking tours in the U.S. to spread their propaganda. So, um, yeah, and... Yeah, I think um, it's... Uh, um, yeah, I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, those trips also included uh, Mike Huckabee and uh, the conservative radio host John Batchelor. And a lot of them came oh. back. I mean, Mike Huckabee t- tweeted about um, his trip and be- tweeted some pictures and said that Qatar was was a was a beautiful uh, country. Um, and yeah, I mean, John Bachelor. I think we could say that these people were bought off with um, Qatari lobby money, you know, um, in the same way that many American politicians are bought off with Israeli lobby money, um, you know. And um, we're not going to be called Islamophobic for saying that. <laughs> no, um, the, the Qatari government literally gave $1.45 million uh, for uh, for Lexington Strategies, which is the, the firm that was lobbying on its behalf in the U.S. So, And this was all disclosed in a, in a, FARA, um, in a FARA document, so it's not making this up. <laughs> Tamara, before we close out, um, what are some stories that you're currently watching right now and... Um... And uh, yeah, and, and what's coming up for you uh, on the Electronic Intifada? Uh, well, I'm honestly closely watching Bayrak Kravid's reports. They contain a lot of uh, staggering information about um, normalization that happened in, in the past years that was mostly either not confirmed or not uh, covered before. Uh, one detail that really shocked me was that, well, it's hard to say that I was shocked, but that really, it, it's always sickening. It's rarely shocking. Um, was that uh, the Saudi government um, supported Israel during its assault, uh, during its war on Lebanon in 2006, and urged them to strike Hezbollah with all their might, um, and were actually disappointed with with Israel's um, with the results of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, it's the, the the report also revealed that um, Israeli former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert uh, met with uh, Saudi prince um, with a Saudi prince uh, in in Amman with with King Abdullah. So these kinds of meetings have been happening. That was in two thousand and six, right after the Israel's war in Lebanon. So these these details are very important to understand because. Um, there is so much that happens that is completely covert and that is not really not not information that anyone knows about, and uh, it tells a lot about how 
um, Israel thinks of its foreign policy to people, you know, towards re in the region, which is which is why the you know Israel's whole like shtick with being surrounded by enemies just always baffles me because you know all these people are are more of your friends than right. they are they're they're ever they're ever going to protect the Palestinians. Yeah, you actually have many many friends in the region. I so. think <clears throat> I think that when they they're talking about uh, being surrounded by enemies, what they actually mean is. Um, the people, the Arab people themselves, because it's quite telling that they have to make um, yeah. peace agreements with um, dictatorships, essentially. And I think that the the um, and it just shows like the, the what you were talking about, how Israel is not accepted by people in the region because of the way it was founded and the, the war crimes that were necessary to found Israel. And I think that what the point you made about um, the Saudis supporting uh, Israeli war crimes in Lebanon in two thousand six is is just is is illustrative of how um, of how Israel and um, Gulf dictatorships, Arab dictatorships, are like nat actually natural partners. Like the Saudis are like the Saudi monarchs are, you know, they're similar similarly sectarian racist um anti-democratic forces which are meddling the both countries are meddling in other countries around the world you know um, so those regimes deserve each other they do and um yeah it's and and that's why they're trying to rush rush out of the whole Palestinian the 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 resolution of the Palestinian question because what's really at the the heart of um, all of these normalization, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of these moves towards normalization are this this mutual interest in war against Iran. So, and and the biggest, the, one of the biggest obstacles that these regimes are 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 facing are their own people because their own people are not on the side of this kind of uh, normalization. They they care about Palestinian rights. They care about the occupation. They want an end to to Israel's apartheid, they want Palestinians to uh, to get their rights of return and mm. to be able to return to their homes and for the occupation to be lifted uh, and for everyone to get equal rights in Israel. But um, and 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 I and I believe personally that before that happens, uh, the gen the it's going to be very hard to create a boogeyman out of Iran for the general Arab public as much as. Uh, because Israel has 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 made an enemy of itself for these people for 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 decades. And in fact, um, when he was in Warsaw last week, um, there was a direct translation of of a, a comment that he made um, that said, "From here, I'm going to a meeting with 60 foreign ministers and envoys of countries from around the world against Iran. What is important about this meeting, and it is not in secret because there are many of those, is that this is an open meeting with representatives of leading Arab countries that are sitting down together with Israel in order to advance the common interest of combating Iran." Could also be translated to war with Iran, um, and apparently those those comment you know that um, people said oh it's taken out of context. <laughs> Is it was it was it really? I mean that was the actual translation of what he said. Yeah, I, th I think his office was trying to save him from his own comments and said that it was mistranslated right. yeah. from Hebrew, uh, and and what <laughs> right. he was actually trying to say that you know he was he was calling on everyone to combat Iranian influence, but. But really, it's just like a Freudian slip, and, yeah. and this is what they're going for. So um, it's right. terrifying. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, thank you, Tamara Nassar, um, for being with us on episode three of the new revamped Electronic Intifada podcast. And we're going to link to all the stories we've been talking about on the blog post that accompanies this podcast, of course. Um, Thank you for all of your work. It's always a a pleasure and an honor to work with you every day. Yeah, it was brilliant. Thank you. Oh, I feel I feel the same way and I'm very honored to have been on the AI podcast. So uh, thank you very much for having me. I thought that was a fantastic interview. It's always nice to to hear from one of our colleagues. Um, and uh, Tamara is just doing incredible yeah. work. And, and we all really appreciate her contributions uh, editorially and also the work that the really incredible work that she's doing in, in the reporting world. Yeah, I think uh, t- I always read Tamara's stories about golf normalization and uh, especially about Qatar, the stuff about Qatar and as it relates to the yeah. Al Jazeera documentary that was suppressed. Right. And we didn't even have time to go right. into that. But That's right. I mean Mort Klein, she she uh, she talked about Mort Klein at the ZOA who actually went to Qatar to try and get the Al Jazeera documentary um, fully censored. Yeah, and right? uh, was successful in terms of it not being broadcast on Al Jazeera's TV channel, although we leaked we right. leaked it so ha ha <laughs> <laughs> tough luck <laughs> but i'm sure we'll have tomorrow on again she's like uh, a natural yeah. natural broadcaster yeah absolutely yeah. well uh, another great episode thank you so much asa have a great week and we'll be back next time yeah That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.